hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm fresh off a trip, returned to Dallas from testifying in the Arizona State Capitol, Phoenix, Arizona, for the novel coronavirus Southwestern Intergovernmental Committee. Now, I'm a standing member of this committee, which was formed and had its very first uh, testimony in meeting on uh, May 25th of 2023. And this is a bicameral uh, committee. Uh, it has one member of the House of Representatives, uh, which is Steve Montenegro. He's the Speaker of the House. And from the Senate, uh, two members, and they include uh, Miss uh, Janae Champ, who is also a nurse, and uh, Thomas T.J. Shope, who's a, a businessman. And uh, Shope took the vaccine. And there are two other members in the U.S. Congress, uh, appointed by the president of the Arizona Senate, and that includes Congressman Eli Crane and Paul Gosser, and uh, both of them gave uh, presentations from Washington at the meeting. Uh, myself, as a standing member, I'm the physician expert. This meeting also was joined by attorney Aaron Siri from the I Can Decide uh, NGO, uh, which is supporting parents and uh, individual rights on vaccines, as well as Lieutenant Colonel Pete Chambers, who is recently retired from the military, former uh, hero, Green Beret, who suffered a vaccine injury himself and refused to further vaccinate uh, his soldiers under him, and he had thousands under him. This was a riveting testimony, a riveting meeting. It was um, uh, broadcast live by the High Wire. So you can go to the high wire and actually catch the entire hearing. Now, it's about eight hours long. And what I've done for the back half of the McCullough Report is I have included my prepared statements, and you'll hear me cite the literature, and then some question and answer and some feedback from the senators, as well as by Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Pete Chambers. So we had two physicians there on the committee. Um, You can hear that we have clear concerns over the safety and efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines and and the debacle that's played out. But you'll also hear some constructive suggestions. And I want you to understand this is not just uh, about complaining, but it's about giving some concrete uh, suggestions. And I wanted to list those suggestions for you so you can uh, understand that we're trying to do things constructive. We came up with four suggestions for uh, the Arizona state uh, lawmakers, and this would apply to any state in the United States. Number one, hold a meeting and compare hospital ventilator and mortality statistics for COVID-19 hospitalizations. What were the best centers and why? We have to have lessons learned. If there's another pandemic, we need to know who are the go-to hospitals to care for sick patients. Number two, for any new EUA vaccine, convene an independent state data safety monitoring committee with authority to halt statewide vaccination for serious safety issues. Number four, remove all current and future COVID-19 vaccines from statewide use. Uh, uh, Number four, 
do an inventory of biolabs in the state and inquire on gain-of-function research programs that are allowed, if not federally funded. Demand safety and procedural accountability, otherwise ban such programs. I think these are four very constructive steps that every state could take, every country could take, those listening to the McCullough Report. So let's get on to it. The novel uh, Coronavirus Southwestern Intergovernmental Committee Meeting Deliberations, October 20th, 2023. You're listening to the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It works. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code out loud, global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Have you had COVID-19 or have suffered a vaccine injury syndrome? You know, all of these conditions are metabolic, catabolic strains on the body. The body has increased needs for essential micronutrients and minerals, and the GI tract may not be functioning completely normally in terms of absorption. The solution, healthy cell. Healthy Cell has an entire product line using MicroJo technologies. So these are in liquid gel packs that you simply uh, rip open and a quick squirt and you've got everything you need in terms of nutrients. The product lines are the Immune Super Boost, the uh, Focus in Memory, and my favorite, the REM Sleep Supplement for an ideal night's sleep. Try them out. Go to HealthyCell.com and enter in out loud for a discount on your first purchase. Oh, or go on our platform, America Out Loud Talk Radio, and click on the banner bar, Healthy Cell, to get your discount. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Out loud. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25.
AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Dr. McCullough. The WHO has played an adverse uh, uh, role from the very beginning, deceiving the world on the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Doctors like us in clinical practice got behind on this because our governments and agencies like the WHO weren't honest with us. And instead of helping us, or at least getting out of the way in terms of treating patients and saving lives, they got in the way and they impeded our ability to treat patients. They effectively created an entire environment of therapeutic nihilism. There are only two things that prevented hospitalization and death. One was early treatment early on, and then the second was to acquire natural immunity with the first episode of the infection. Nothing else worked. There were only two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. To this day, the WHO does not support, embrace, or promulgate early treatment protocols for patients with acute COVID-19. That should tell you something. That should be a wake-up call. We're going on three years of this. Three years of this. And still nothing to reduce human suffering from the WHO. Nothing. In fact, efforts that enhance human suffering. Because the first wave was the illness. And I've testified in the U.S. Uh, Senate multiple times. The majority of hospitalizations and deaths were completely avoidable in the highest risk patients with early Intervention, starting with virucidal nasal sprays and gargles, and then intravenous and oral drugs administered at home to get people through the illness. Now enter the vaccines. Since 2021, the vaccines have ravaged the population in the world. Worldwide, two-thirds of people took a vaccine. United States COVID community state study shows 75% of Americans took a vaccine. Thankfully, 25% didn't. I was the only public health and public figure in the United States in writing to question the vaccines before they came out. And I did it as loudly as I could. The COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, 94% of Americans took a messenger RNA vaccine. It is the genetic code for the potentially lethal spike protein part of the virus. It was the worst idea ever to install the genetic code by injection and allow unbridled production of a potentially lethal protein in the human body for an uncontrolled duration of time. Everything we've learned about the vaccine since they've come out is horrifying. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas, and that was my uh, prepared remarks for the European Parliament on September 13th, 2023. A giant issue for all countries is whether they will fully subscribe to the World Health Organization Pandemic Treaty Alliance and the International 
regulations that are being proposed, which will give the World Health Organization complete dominion, binding by international law over all plants, animals, and humans on the globe. The Biden administration is fully in support of this. I've written my local congressman in Texas. He's fully in support of this, as so many people in Washington. So keep that in mind uh, when you're inquiring with, discussing, and listening to those seeking office about where they stand on the World Health Organization. Very uh, important. As a cardiologist, I'm going to give an update, uh, as I would to other doctors and nurses in what we call bench to bedside. Bench to bedside. Some of you have heard that. That's a colloquialism that we use in medicine. Here's the updates, and this is all new from the time I presented to this committee uh, several months ago. The first papers by Schreckenberg and colleagues published in the Journal of Pharmacology. Schreckenberg took heart muscle cells from rats in a test tube and applied both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine directly to the cardiomyocytes. This is the type of safety research that the companies should have done during the development of the vaccines. They found within 48 hours, the heart muscle cells got very sick. They started to contract in abnormal ways, conduct electricity and depolarization in very abnormal ways within 48 hours. It was evidence of direct cardiac toxicity. If this would have been a drug in development, likely the drug company would have killed it because it, 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 it demonstrated early and direct harm to the heart muscle cells. Now, Crossan and colleagues from Harvard has found the messenger RNA in the human heart in people who have died after the vaccine. It's physically in the heart. Castriuda and colleagues published uh, in the Journal of Pathology, uh, Microbiology and Immunology has found circulating messenger RNA in the blood for 28 days and that's as long as they've looked. So the messenger RNA itself is now being measured in research, and, and these are not findings that are reassuring at all. Brogna and colleagues from Germany, published in the journal Proteomics, found circulating spike protein produced by the messenger RNA in the blood in half of the people who took the vaccine out to six months and that's as long as they've looked. So if someone is following the government schedule for the vaccines right now, they have circulating spike protein in the bloodstream from the vaccine for six months. They take another shot, they get more circulating spike protein from the vaccines, and it keeps going and going. The spike protein itself is directly dangerous to cells, tissues, and organs in the human body, and these are very exact measurements telling us that this vaccine, the messenger RNA, and the spike protein that is produced are long-lasting and are not being broken down by normal human enzymes. The messenger RNA is synthetic. It's been changed. The change is called pseudouridination. It replaces a normal uh, nucleic acid uracil with something called pseudouridine. There are indestructible 5' and 3' nucleoside analog caps. 
The Nobel Prize was just awarded to Weissman and to Carrico for this modification of the RNA. Now, in theory, the messenger RNA would be great if it was producing a normal human protein like missing insulin in a type 1 diabetic, as an example. But when we're talking about a vaccine and producing an abnormal and dangerous protein, it's a very bad idea. Now, the vaccine companies that own intellectual property on messenger RNA, there's 9,000 patents on messenger RNA. And the leading patent assignees are CureVac, Sanofi, uh, BioNTech, Moderna, and the U.S. government are the leading patent assignees. No single person invented messenger RNA. Don't be fooled by someone who comes out and said they invented it. 9,000 patents. There are an incredible set of investments made worldwide by companies on messenger RNA. The ones that are made for the vaccines appear to be an intellectual gamble that we can trick the body into producing a foreign protein and not trigger autoimmunity and not trigger problems. Next up will be the flu vaccine. If the flu vaccine, and one of the proteins this flu vaccine makes is the spike protein, and it's called the hemagglutinase on the flu vaccine, we could take a relatively benign vaccine and make it a very harmful vaccine if we had uncontrolled production of influenza hemagglutinase. Keep that in mind. Now, as a cardiologist, a paper published in Radiology caught my eye. Nakahara and colleagues studied over 700 people who took the vaccine and 300 people who did not take the vaccine. They had cardiac PET scans, positron emission tomography, which studies the metabolism of the heart. Normally, the heart relies on free fatty acids as its fuel from the bloodstream. A diseased pattern is when the heart starts to prefer glucose and takes up 18 fluorodeoxyglucose. So when I order a PET scan in clinical practice, I'm looking for a diseased area of the heart, typically because it's, it's not getting enough blood flow, uh, with a cardiac PET scan. What Nakahara and colleagues found is virtually everyone who took the vaccine, the heart shifted towards taking up fluorodeoxyglucose. The PET scans became abnormal. 65% of people who took the vaccine had a sore arm. Those who had a sore arm had the greatest abnormalities in PET scan. Now, Schwab and colleagues in Germany have done an autopsy study, and they found when there's inflammation in the arm at the time of death, there's inflammation in the heart. So a clinical clue into who may become sick with the vaccines and who doesn't is the initial reaction in the arm. This is a very important point. Many have shown this. Now to humans. Hulsher and colleagues at the University of Michigan who sought me out in an approved project by the University of Michigan School of Public Health, of which I am a graduate, uh, we performed a uh, systematic review of all the autopsy cases published in the peer-reviewed medical literature. We reviewed over 600 papers, extracted all the data from each autopsy, made evidence tables from that, and then submitted those results to three independent reviewers for them to adjudicate whether or not the death was caused by the vaccine based on our contemporary knowledge of what the vaccine does to the human body, not based on the author's original conclusions because we were learning over time and it's very hard to see case by case what was going on. In 325 cases, the panel adjudicated 
50% of the cases as being due to the vaccine or significantly contributed to the vaccine. Now, in the cases, the 28 cases, where the doctors thought it was myocarditis or the cardiac arrest was due to the vaccine, 100% of the time, myocarditis or cardiac damage was found due to the vaccine. This paper was favorably reviewed by the Lancet editorial staff. It was triaged to a lower journal, and uh, Lancet Family Journal, it, we declined and took it to a higher level journal for continued review. But Lancet accepted it on its preprint server, and after uh, uh, two reviews uh, to make sure that the paper met all the criterion for a preprint publication, uh, it received surges of downloads over one night. And then Elsevier, the parent publishing company in Lancet, in Lancet censored it off their platform. And they claimed at that time that the methodology did not support the conclusions. We used a standard search technology called Prisma technology, and we had standard adjudication review. That met every bit of grade for academic publication. That paper then was posted on the European Commission <coughs> preprint server, and it's received record downloads. To give you an idea of the proxy for academic interest in this, typical vaccine paper, of which there are many different aspects of vaccines, about 25 to 50 downloads and reads we are now at over 250,000 downloads and reads on the autopsy paper. But as we sit here today, the next person who dies after a vaccine, and there is no other explanation, there's no other terminal disease, terminal cardiac disease, terminal cancer, no homicide, suicide, drug overdose, no other explanation. On a more probable than not basis, that death is due to the vaccine if we performed an autopsy. I want everyone to understand that. Now to population. So we've gone to from the bench to the bedside to the population. A single case, I think, exemplifies the great concern of what we're facing right now. It's the case of Oscar Cabrera Adamas. He is a Dominican basketball player who plays internationally. In 2021, he gets a COVID-19 vaccine. He suffers a cardiac arrest on the basketball court and then is successfully resuscitated. He messages out publicly that he has vaccine myocarditis and his cardiac arrest is due to the myocarditis. He is appropriately taken out of sports because we know when there's myocarditis, athletic competition can trigger a cardiac arrest. This was our guidelines before COVID. So all forms of myocarditis cannot participate in sports. He's out of sports. He's trying to recover. Presumably he's treated. He's on a medical stress test with the EKG on to assess whether or not he's ready to return to sports, did not have an ICD implanted, and he suffers a fatal cardiac arrest on the treadmill. Now, as a cardiologist, I've supervised treadmills my entire life. I've actually never had a fatal case because we have the defibrillator there, IVs, and all the drugs. So I can tell you almost certainly this cardiac arrest was a brutal cardiac arrest in a perfectly healthy basketball player. If what happened to Oscar Cabrera Adamas is any proxy for what could happen to individuals taking the vaccine, as a cardiologist, I am frightened. Let me repeat, he died two years after he took the initial vaccines in 2021. He, and he, under supervised medical care, he died. 
to give you any idea of the level of concern. Now, an epidemiologist from uh, Canada, Rancourt and colleagues, has published an ecological analysis from countries all over the world. He estimates that 17 million people potentially have died after COVID-19 vaccination. This is going to exceed almost every known world tragedy that we can think of if this continues. Our US CDC VAR system, vaccine event reporting system, as through September 25th, 2020, has recorded 18,188 deaths. If the CDC has certified that the deaths have happened, 86% of the reports to the VAR system are made by doctors, nurses, paramedics, people who think the vaccine is the cause of the problem. Our CDC is verifying 18,188 Americans. Now, in the FDA testimony by experts who have testified, the underreporting ratio, the number of underreports, because if we don't have the vaccine card and the paramedics don't have it, we can't report it. The underreporting factor is anchored at 30. In one peer-reviewed paper, it's anchored at 40. But if we're conservative and we take it at 30, as we sit here today, 545,640 Americans have died after the COVID-19 vaccine. Of the 18,188 that the CDC has curated, of that 18,000 that the CDC knows have died after the vaccine, 1,100 have died on the same day they took the vaccine, some within a few minutes of taking it in the vaccine center or a few hours afterwards. That is where we sit today. And yet we have no broad recognition of this astronomical mortality signal by any public health official in the United States, nor by the representatives of any of the committees in the House and the Senate that supervise this, nor do we have it broadly acknowledged by presidential candidates or others. We don't have it broadly acknowledged by corporate boards of corporations or by the, the uh, presidents and provosts and deans of universities. There is a massive blindness to this gigantic mortality signal. Finally, I want to go over the Bradford Hill criteria for causation. It's an epidemiologic criteria that we use. I'm trained in epidemiology. I've published in this field for four decades. Sir Austin Bradford Hill proposed a way of thinking about a potential cause of death and death and to have us understand, did something cause death? And he originally applied it to smoking, to smoking. Did smoking cause lung cancer? That was the original exercise. So the, one of the first criteria is, you know, is it a big signal? Is it worth talking about? The answer is yes. This is the biggest biological safety signal we've seen of all time. There's more deaths now than with any other medicinal product or, or, that we can uh, think of in, in modern use. So it's a big signal. Is it internally consistent? Meaning, are there other near misses? Do we have a stroke in a young woman in her 30s that could have been fatal? Yes, we just heard about that today. Or uh, a cardiac arrest of which a basketball player just was resuscitated. Yes, if, if they didn't have the defibrillator paddles and he wasn't on the court, he would have died. So yes, we have internal consistency, meaning we see tons of near misses. Do we have external consistency? The answer is yes. We have 39 safety databases in, uh, in the world, including the VAR system, but in the big ones, the yellow card, the uh, uh, European Union 
the, the, the WHO VigiSafe, the EMA UDRA system, uh, the UK Yellow Card system, VAERS, they all agree we see record mortalities after the vaccine. So we have external consistency. Is there biologic plausibility? Yes. The vaccines install the genetic code for the deadly spike protein, which causes disease and damage in tissues, organs, and in the human body. The spike protein is found in the blood clots. It's physically in the blood clots. It's physically found in cells for as long as we've looked, sadly. There's not a single study showing the messenger RNA goes away or the spike protein completely goes away. We are searching for ways to, to, uh, to remove that threat from the body. Is it temporary related? Yes. Events that happen very close in time to when someone takes a vaccine become more and more likely as the vaccine. Now, if 1,100 Americans, as our CDC tells us, died on the same day they took the vaccine, that's in the context of someone walking into a vaccine center or somebody healthy enough to take a vaccine. These aren't moribund people who are on their last day of life and figured, well, I'm just going to take a COVID vaccine. As a doctor, I would never recommend or administer any vaccine on the last day of life in a terminal patient. No, all of these patients were people who were expecting to live. That's the reason why they took the vaccine. And sadly, 1,100 Americans die on the same day they take them, within a few hours. Randomized trials. In the randomized trials, the original ones that Aaron Siri quoted, Pfizer was the lead, we've now learned from the time of the data cutoff in mid-November of 2020 to the time of the FDA meeting December 10th, 2020, there were 38 additional deaths that occurred. These were people on the vaccine, 38 additional deaths. Pfizer did not update the core slides at the FDA committee meeting, nor did they provide an appendix to the briefing booklet. No one on the panel asked Pfizer if there were additional deaths. Now, I've served on FDA panels. I've served as an advisor to companies. I've served as the main presenter. In each and every instance, I've always asked the sponsor, has anything else happened since the time you closed the data set? That is a standard question. So the entire FDA approval process failed. Turns out there was more deaths with Pfizer. And if it would be properly analyzed, the conclusion was, there's a three to four-fold excess cardiovascular risk with Pfizer compared to placebo. If that meeting would have been conducted correctly and if Pfizer would have been fully responsive to presenting the data and fully, uh, uh, you know, fully and honestly and fairly presenting everything that happened, that product should never have been approved. Pfizer should have never been approved. The paper that brought that to light is published by Michaels and colleagues, and it's in the peer-reviewed literature. It's my opinion as a doctor, a practicing doctor who's seen patients and under direct examination, I am seeing the complications of COVID-19 vaccine firsthand. Dr. Chambers is going to give you very vivid testimony in just a minute. And by surveying all the literature, in publishing, I'm very active in this field. I have over 70 peer-reviewed publications as a, an author or, or a contributing investigator. It's my conclusion that the vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccines, all of them are not safe for human use. 
I've testified under oath in the U.S. Senate December 7, 2022, that they're not safe for human use. That's my opinion. And by assent, our group agreed. My testimony in the European Parliament, September 17, 2023, reiterated to Europe, the vaccines are not any safer. In fact, the data are worse every minute. They are unsafe from human use. They should be removed from the market. Now, the World Council for Health, which is uh, a uh, evidence-based, consensus-driven, worldwide organization, on June 11, 2022, called for all COVID-19 vaccines to be removed from the market. On March 31st, 2023, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons called for all COVID-19 vaccines to be removed from the market. So when you hear a mantra that all the doctors agree with the vaccines, that all the agencies say the vaccines are safe and effective, you can say, no, they don't. Not all the organizations agree. Not all the doctors agree. In fact, here are two organizations, one worldwide, one American, that actually say just the opposite. They're not safe for human use. What's going on at the state level that people can do in the state? There have been active meetings and hearings in Idaho that have basically said, listen, if the federal government is not going to pull these off the market, they're going to do it themselves in various jurisdictions. The same thing is happening in Florida. That's happening. This is a consumer product safety issue. Attorney general offices in states have jurisdiction over consumer product safety issue. And if the federal agencies are not going to do anything about vaccine safety, it's well within the right of every state at some level, the attorney general's office at an oversight committee level, a special assigned committee to start taking matters into their own hands. States can do this. I can tell you as a doctor, when this happened, I didn't wait for the government to tell me what to do. When I testified the first time in the U.S. Senate on December, on November um, 8th, 20, uh, 2020, it's pretty early on, I held up my protocol and I said, listen, I'm not asking permission to do this. I'm doing this as a doctor. I have authority to do this as a doctor. This state has the authority to do what's right for its people. This is very, very important. For COVID-19 vaccine injuries and long COVID syndrome, there's a paper by Dexer and colleagues showing that 70% of everybody suffering with long COVID is due to the vaccine. They've taken multiple vaccines. The vaccine's a bigger factor than having COVID. So mo most of this is being whitewashed as long COVID. The Biden administration and HHS has written a research plan. They spent a billion dollars on long COVID. In that research plan, they never consider whether the vaccine is the cause of the problem. They assume it's COVID. In fact, it's all whitewashed as COVID. That billion dollars has generated zero new drugs, zero protocols or strategies, zero new in vitro diagnostics. It's the biggest waste of a billion scientific dollars I've ever seen in my life. Nothing's been generated out of it. So myself and others have taken matters into our own hands and we've published the first peer-reviewed journal on detoxification of the spike protein, removing the spike protein from the human body based on a theoretical basis and some limited human studies. It's called Base Spike Detoxification. It was published in the Journal of the American Physician and Surgeon. It's also on the European Commission preprint server. And it proposes, it's a proposal, that people who have symptoms after multiple rounds of COVID or the vaccine 
detoxify, that is help the body break down the spike protein for removal using three natural substances. First one is natokinase, 2,000 units twice a day as a low dose can be increased. Bromelain, 500 milligrams a day. And then curcumin, which is a derivative of turmeric, 500 milligrams twice a day. And this is based on the best available literature. I've tried every prescription drug that exists. There is no cure for this in the prescription pharmacopoeia. But I do believe that this triple combination, after direct observation in my practice for over a year, people are getting better case by case. I just held a meeting with hundreds of doctors in the United Kingdom, and I wanted their practice experience on this, and they are finding people get better. Now, it takes three to 12 months for people to slowly get better. And we do add additional drugs depending on what the problem is, particularly blood thinners when there's blood clots. But as a proposal, I want the committee in the state of Arizona to hear that doctors are trying to do things to help patients and without any funding or recognition by the federal government, just like with the treatment of COVID, we will have to pave the way in helping people resolve long COVID and vaccine injury syndromes. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you so much for letting me. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough. Thank you. Yes. So, yes, we the people must pave the way. You know, it's interesting that some of the, um, some of the numbers that you're, that you're discussing, 600,000 deaths, but just, just under 600,000 deaths from the vaccine, that, we, that we're definitely, that we can say that, hands down. What was the number? Do you, by chance, know the number of deaths from COVID within the same time period? The, the number of deaths right now on the books for COVID are at 1.2 million. Now, that's every death that happened with someone testing positive. When there's an analysis of did they really primarily die of COVID, the answer is it's about 10% of that. So it's roughly 120,000 Americans died directly of COVID. Now, one could say that, that if it was in the context of someone near the end of life, they were robbed of a few days or a few months or, of life, and that's a fair argument. But our government um, encouraged death certificate coding that was so broadly inclusive that even things that were completely unrelated to COVID or COVID pneumonia, if they tested positive, was counted as a COVID death. And we now know the COVID test, the PCR test, can remain positive for many months after the initial infection. But the false positive rates are fairly high on that as well, right? Because well, we're, you're utilizing PCR. It's going to pick up, especially if what, whatever the protocol was set at for the rate. Right. Well, that's what makes it false positive. So someone who had legitimate COVID in January can easily test positive for COVID in June because the virus is long-lasting in the body. The body has formed immunity to it, but still can find viral fragments. My dad, in a nursing facility, developed COVID in 2020. He tested positive for months after, 17 times he tested positive, because we were trying to get him out of isolation. Hmm. So I, and, and there's been now reports in the literature, people testing positive consistently for over a year. They don't have COVID for a year. They're not contagious for a year. They're contagious probably for five days. So test positivity alone is not good enough to determine cause of death. What you need to demand is adjudicated data. How many people adjudicated really died of COVID? 
Now that is funny that you mentioned that because that is data that I've been trying to get a hold of to be able to analyze at the state level. And uh, you know, we have we have a system, um, an electronic system that we utilize. We discussed a little in the last committee, and I so I had asked, is there any way to break it down? Like, oh, is there is there any kind of relationship with comorbidities such as um, you know diabetes or um, hypertension? Those were two common. They were noticing anecdotally, right, clinically. So how can we how can we pull that data out from our? But there's no there's no subsets of it. There's it's been diluted so so much with these codes that you you can't. But when I look at studies from the Society of Actuaries Research Institute, you can see that there was a 134 percent increase in all cause mortality in 2021. So, I, I mean, I suppose we could say, well, maybe those were COVID deaths. But at that point, over 60, what was it, 68% of the world's population had already been vaccinated. So when are we going to start to take those numbers and actually parse it down? Or is it even possible? It may not be possible with the, the data at hand. Every country has their vaccine administration data and they have their all-cause mortality data. In the United States, we have the National Death Index and we have the CDC administration data. CDC holds both of them. Other countries, it's exquisitely accurate in terms of who died and when they died and who took a vaccine and when they took a vaccine. Denmark is an example. I recently visited Denmark. I talked to one of the lead authors on a paper there, Dr. Verbecki Manici. The Danish authorities refuse to allow anyone to merge the vaccine administration data with the death data. There's been requests that have gone into our CDC and National Death Index. No answer. So governments in, hold the answer in their hand. What could be done with those data? At least a temporal analysis. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a, a fair uh, yardstick. In clinical trials, when we get to the level of the FDA review board, any death that occurs within 30 days of administration of a novel product is counted for the product, period. Mm -hmm. irrespective of an autopsy or causation. Anything within 30 days, it counts on the product. I've been on uh, 24 data safety monitoring boards, and we always make that rule because we don't know what's going to happen. So 30 days is an arbitrary, uh, I think, fair period of time to make a conclusion. Listen, someone dies within 30 days of taking a new pill or a new shot. Uh, uh, we need to be conservative and attribute it to the new shot. What we've learned with the COVID vaccines, maybe that period of time isn't a month. It may be a couple years. It may be much worse, but at least 30 days. So if we merged our national death index with the CDC administration data and the Danish authorities and the French authorities, they all did the same thing. And if we actually picked a yardstick at 30 days, we could get a handle on how many deaths are ascribed directly to COVID-19 vaccination. Do you have any suggestions on how we can push for that, how we can get it, how, I, it seems to me that the only way to make these decisions to en enable the people to understand exactly, we heard 99.7x percent of people who contracted COVID-19 survived across the age groups, correct? So don't, in order to make an informed consent, wouldn't we need to know the balance on the risk? with the vaccine versus the risk with the disease. 
It seems like a very simple thing that we should be allowed to have access to. One could say this much. In the setting of a novel genetic vaccine, in an illness that we're learning how to treat and treatment's getting better and better every day and the virus is getting more and more mild every day, one, I think, should take a very hard stand on safety. Hmm. Listen, no American, not a single one should walk into a vaccine center and lose their life. Amen. That should not happen. It's not, it's not a matter of, well, we're going to lose some with the vaccine and we're going to lose some with the COVID and we're going to try to weigh out the relative value of someone's life. The American Board of Internal Medicine still has on its website, and this was at about 6,000 vaccine deaths. On its website, it says, well, 6,000 vaccine deaths, that number's pretty small compared to the number of COVID-19 that we're going to somehow value this, like small price to pay in a bad pandemic. And we're going to hear a lot of our public health officials do that. Don't accept that. Don't accept that because you had alternatives. If you didn't take a vaccine, you could seek early treatment. Mm -hmm. One could do other things to improve their survival. It wasn't a matter of trading life for life. That's not a, that's not a fair trade-off. Where we are today in terms of what is the immediate risk of death from the vaccine with the COVID vaccines, it's been centered right now in about one in 800 shots. Wow. One in 800 shots is the current number that's generally accepted out there among epidemiologists. AP Press and Reuters is reporting as of October 4th 2023, that only 1.3% of Americans are taking any more shots, 1.3. That's a proxy for no confidence among Americans. It's very important. Americans do not have confidence in these vaccines. They don't feel that they're medically necessary. They're clinically indicated. Most people have gotten through the illness. We have data that 97% of Americans have gotten through the illness paper by Clausen and colleagues have demonstrated that probably more now, it's probably nearly 100%. And then Americans don't want these vaccines. So this is very important for elected officials who are interested in re-election yeah. and standing <laughs> behind vaccines. Americans by proxy of doing this don't want this. There's a Rasmussen survey done in December of 2022. 20, uh, 28% of Americans thought they knew somebody who died of the vaccine. There's a Kaiser Family Foundation survey, end of June, early July, that reported a third of Americans think the COVID vaccines have caused thousands of deaths. Well, let me tell you, when, when you have a third of people who think that, they talk to other people. We don't need social media. We don't need mainstream media. By word of mouth, people know the vaccines could cause loss of a life with the next shot. While he's up here, okay, I would Dr. like Chambers. to thank him for something that happened. You didn't know about it because you wouldn't have known. But when I was alone and unafraid on the border with 3,000 soldiers defending the southern border of America, Operation thank Lone Star, thank you. Our, our command and our DMED system, which is supposed to be this, the sentinel event indicator to tell us there's something wrong, whether there's a glitch in the system or not, was there a rise? Because those of us that are standing on the border, looking at south, watching for a needle in a needle stack, a terrorist coming across, or somebody to harm us in our sleep, we were being harmed by something else, right? We didn't know it. 
So when my first case is on the border, 27-year-old with myocarditis, pericarditis combination, a, a North Dakota National Guard soldier who came down to volunteer to help in Texas, uh, went into McAllen Heart Hospital, ended up with an ejection fraction of a 70-year-old CHF patient, congestive heart failure patient, and booted out of the military with no coverage because it was not admitted to that it was, it was caused by the vaccine. In my career, at 20 years as a physician since 2003, going through several combat deployments, taking care of the, the healthiest soldiers in the world, Green Berets, and a lot of young kids, paratroopers, and, and whatnot. I've had one, one heart attack in that whole time from a 55-year-old uh, sergeant major that had a little weight problem, et cetera. Took care of him, had a widowmaker, took care of him downrange in Belgrade. Uh, got flown to Germany, we, and we cathed him. He did great. But one, in my time on the border, less than a year, as a task force surgeon for up to 6,000 soldiers, I had 15 events that would fall in that category of uh, an event for us, a reportable event to the commander. Wake-up criteria is hospitalized with severe diagnosis or died. I had six deaths on that border after I left. I was the guy that stood in the gap and said, no shots. I, I lost the game of rock, paper, rank. When a two-star says, you got to do informed consents, or no, you have to recuse yourself of informed consents, that's an unlawful order. Now, Dr. McCullough was one of the first people to actually teach us, people in the trenches, literally, what is it that we're looking for? And so my first informed consent had you, Ryan Cole, Lee Merritt, and Dale Bigtree, of all people. Dale's de description of antigens by football plays was interesting because my soldiers understood it. But without that, those of us on those front lines and the soldiers that knew that they didn't have to take it because their doc told them, don't take it. But here's the good, the bad, and the ugly of an informed consent. 96, 99% point. 99.99 in my case, these are the healthiest people in the world. But then when soldiers came in from other places that had taken the shots, they saw it. And this, this is word of mouth, right? And then when I testify in SEALs versus Lloyd Austin, and it's, is it safe? Is it effective? Now, Matt Staver and I, Liberty Council, are discussing this the night before. Is it a safe? Is it effective? Can you do it by lesser intrusive means? Can you take care of your soldiers to remain operationally ready? Because that's the whole thing that DOD is concerned about, is readiness. What's your percentage of readiness? Are you, are you prepared to close with and destroy the enemy at 100% capacity? Because that's what we have to do. And when I, leave, when I have soldiers that have to leave their posts, 70%, that's why your numbers are interesting to me, 70% of the people that came into sick call were the ones that were double vaxxed over and over and over every time they would test them over and over as a guy that used to work in the emergency room why are we doing PCR testing as a screening tool can you explain to me never done this before 20 years you know what sick looks like they're not sick why do we test them right but as soon as somebody gets a fever well it's 110 degrees in southern Texas you come into the you know they check them in the chow hall oh, he's got a fever test him this was done every day masks hand sanitizer 
We're looking at 12,500 people coming across a week on this border. Not a single one has a test. There are some other things that we're more concerned about. When I had 17,000 Haitians show up in Del Rio, tuberculosis, dengue, other diseases that, that you, you've never even heard of. Not one person is tested. So that being said, guys like you was what put us in line to stand in the gap for our soldiers for this country. Let me just put some uh, very important uh, context on this. Myocarditis or heart damage, I've just presented to you, is fatal. It's a fatal complication of the vaccine. And it can lead to heart failure. I have one patient who took one shot of Moderna. He went into fulminant heart failure because he had a prior bypass surgery and required a heart transplant at Emory University. Now, the reason why he reached out to me is after a complicated six-month course in the hospital, he finally got out, and he said the transplant doctors would want him to take a second shot. To give you any idea of the deranged type of thinking that's occurring among clinicians right now, 90% of myocarditis is in men. The peak age is 18 to 24. These ages are military fighting soldiers and our college students. Early on in the pandemic in 2020, I was the co-principal investigator of a vaccine program that we were proposing to the U.S. government using a European vaccine, a unique cellular-based vaccine. And what I had crafted for America was a vaccine program that would vaccinate no more than 2.7 million Americans, seniors in nursing homes and those in congregate living severely disabled and the workers taking care of them. If we had a safe and effective vaccine in this country, it should have only been for roughly 2.7 million people, the patient group that I've described. It should never have extended into our military or our college students or your uh, children or grandchildren, never. And it should never have ever been thought about to be extended down to babies six months old and to pregnant women where we have no assurances on safety. These are manifestations of some type of deranged thinking. It goes beyond any clinical prudence to do this. And when I ask people why, why is it being suggested that a military fighting soldier would take a COVID vaccine when they've already had COVID and they're perfectly fine, no one can give a solid explanation. The same thing for a pregnant woman, the same thing for a six-month-old baby. So it's up to you and the people of this state to question this advice and to question the authorities that are giving this advice because it doesn't make sense. To this, We're three years into the vaccine campaign. We're four years into the pandemic. Almost everybody who's taken a vaccine has had COVID. Almost everybody. It's rare to find anybody who has. So we have both exposures, the virus and the vaccine. The signs and symptoms that are serious are passing out and losing consciousness. No one should ignore that. Seizures, significant weight loss, hair falling out, joint aches, new neurologic symptoms like numbness and tingling, paralysis, very important. It's disturbing, but beyond the four major areas of damage, cardiac, neurologic, thrombotic or blood clots, and immunologic. There are now emerging data in multiple papers published on 
the possibility that the vaccines may cause cancer or promote cancer. There are 12 laboratories that have confirmed that the vaccines are contaminated with a cancer-promoting DNA sequence called SV40, little fragments of DNA that are coming off the manufacturing process of E. coli. There's a paper published by Anguis uh, and colleagues, and it outlines what's called the multi-hit hypothesis for cancer. And in that paper, they describe that the spike protein abundantly produced by the vaccines, without question, is likely to inhibit two cancer surveillance systems, P53 and BRCA. That the messenger RNA itself, the Chinese have published, impairs DNA repair. That's one of our ways to, to prevent cancer cells, our body taking care of our own cancer risk. And then lastly, now contamination with SV40, which is a known enhancer of proto-oncogenes in the DNA. So if one has a genetic tendency for cancer, these pieces of DNA can turn it on. Now, cancer is up in every single cancer surveillance system in the world right now. So it's an open question, is it related to mass vaccination? But in my warnings, TJ, to patients, if patients have had a prior history of cancer in remission, I think they should visit their cancer doctor and consider potentially restaging of where they are. If someone uh, is at high risk for a familial cancer, thyroid cancer, lung cancer, breast, ovary um, uh, cancer, that high risk by family history or otherwise, they should consider potentially early or additional cancer screening. And then clearly, if they have any of the cardinal features developed, weight loss, intermittent fever, swollen lymph nodes, abdominal pain, chest pain, et cetera, to get a move on this, don't sit on what is potentially an aggressive cancer. An appropriate term has come up in the colloquial uh, verbiage on the vaccines. It's called turbo cancer. And it's called turbo cancer for a reason. Because it's like cancer on, on a turbojet. It's accelerating much more rapidly than we've ever seen before. And I've seen these cases. I don't want to alarm the country and alarm the state of Arizona but I want people to be aware it's theoretically possible that multiple administrations of a vaccine is probably going to be related to the number of shots in this case and predisposition could be related to cancer.